This is Power for Living, the Bible teaching ministry of Christ the King Church in Wakefield, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Feliciano Segundo, and our teacher is Father Michael Carl. So get all your Bibles and let's get started. For our time, let's look at Micah 6, 1 through 8. Now, Micah says the message is from God right away. He says, now, hear what the Lord says. So he's telling those people that what he's getting ready to say is directly from the Lord. And I think that's most likely that's really good advice for us, too. We all should hear what the Lord has to say. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, he tells them basically to say their peace. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now, verses 1c and 2 are similar because the Lord calls the mountains and witnesses. Now, the word in the ESV was indictment, and the word here is complaint, but it means the same thing, because anyone who has looked at law for very long knows that a complaint or an indictment is a charge against the suspect. How many times have we heard on the news So-and-so was indicted by a grand jury for whatever. That means that they've been officially charged with the crime. And so here, God is actually charging the people of Israel with the same thing as always, idolatry, adultery, and the other things that they frequently engaged in. So remember that an indictment is the first step in a criminal proceeding. Now, Israel's sin, therefore, we can assume, or not assume, we can know that Israel's sin was serious in the Lord's eyes. But all sin is serious to God. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, so the Lord says in verse 3, what have I done? You know, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. He's basically challenging them to say, If you've really found something against me, let me hear it. Let me know what it is you're complaining about. And then he goes on, the Lord says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So he's saying, hey, what are you guys complaining about? Because I've done all of this for you. And here you are going off on a tangent again, doing your own thing, engaging in some of the more gross sins. And they're talking about, you know, even one of the things the people of Israel were tempted to do was to follow the false god Molech. Does anybody know what people did when they followed Molech? Yes, they threw their firstborn child into the fire to sacrifice them to the god Molech. So the people had even gone that far. So he goes on in verse 5. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. 
And David Guzik says about this, After meeting with Balak of Moab, Balaam prophesied over Israel four times. Now, this was supposed to be a deal where the people of Israel got cursed. And as he spoke God's word, he did not curse Israel, but he blessed them each time. When he was unsuccessful in cursing Israel, Balaam answered Balak on how to bring Israel under a curse. Instead of trying to have a prophet curse them, the Moabites would lead them into fornication and idolatry, and thus God would curse idolatrous Israel and disobedient Israel. Balak did just that, sending his young women into the camp of Israel to lead Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. And because of their sin, God did curse Israel. He brought a plague of judgment upon them that killed 24,000 people. So Balaam couldn't curse them verbally. He ended up blessing them, but he did tell them, and that's why he's guilty. And that's why you see the spirit of Balaam listed in the charges in Revelations 2 and 3, because he did tell them, he did tell Balak what he could do to get Israel to mess up. So now, then they ask in verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so they ask, with what? The Israelites are thinking religion. Then they think, yeah, let's do sacrifices. That'll please God. They're not realizing here at this point that what God wants from them is their heart, not a bunch of actions and whatever. And Stan Mast says about this, their answer to God's questions, sacrifices. Note how the sacrifices mentioned in verses 6 and 7 increase in cost and volume, beginning with burnt offerings of a year-old calf proceeding to thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil and ending with the horror of child sacrifice the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, as did the worshipers of Molech, as we've mentioned already. Moving from the reasonable, and even God commanded sacrifices at one point, to the absurd, the things that were forbidden by God, the guilty Israelites ascended the ladder of sacrifice, and if we rely on sacrifice to win back God's favor, what does it take, and how many, and what kind? So here's the question. How do you know when you've offered enough? How do you know when you've done enough? How do you know if you've given the Lord enough? If you base your relationship with God on your actions, and me too. So how do we know that we've done enough to atone for our sin? And if without God's forgiveness the way he offers it freely, we will never know how much we have to do because there's no tote board. You know, or like in a golf tournament, you see the leaderboard at the 18th hole where everybody scores up there. We won't know because there is no such thing. So God says, 
Why are you wanting to do that? Now, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, that's the people saying, okay, so is God really going to be pleased with this? And the answer is no. Because what he's looking for, God is, is what's in verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice means basically to be honest, to be straightforward, to be upright, to have integrity, to be as honest as you know how to be. So that's doing justice, treating people fairly, basically. And so, second, he says, to love mercy. We're to cherish grace and mercy. The ancient world is the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated loving kindness, or the ancient word, rather, excuse me, is translated loving kindness in the King James Version. Hesed is withholding retaliation that is deserved while showing kindness that isn't. Hesed is what Jonathan asked David to show his descendants in 1 Samuel 20:15, and is precisely what Israel's third king showed his friend's crippled son Mephibosheth years later. In our tolerant relativistic society, we need to make an important distinction here. Hesed isn't blind to the fact that a wrong has been done, and it isn't even afraid to say so. That's moral cowardice. Hesed sees the wrong, may even call the offender's attention to it, but shows kindness nonetheless, and shows mercy still. And please notice, though we're not just to do mercy, like we're told to do justly, we're commanded to love mercy. Literally, we're to be lovers of loving kindness. Naturally, we love to retaliate. And I'll get them for this, right? Uh, he's going to get what's coming to him. But how do we overcome that? It's by appreciating how much we personally need mercy and grace from those who know us best. What you appreciate, you come to love. And our Father tells us to hold ourselves to a high standard of honesty and to show others mercy when they don't measure up. We prefer that others be honest with us and show us mercy when we don't measure up, right? We want that mercy. Take it easy on me, man. We want that to be shown to us. So if that's what we want, if we want people to show us mercy, let's show mercy to others. And that's what we have to do. Now, the third part of this is to walk humbly with, our, with your God. David Guzik says again, walk humbly when you are spiritually strong. Walk humbly when you have much work to do. Walk humbly in your motives. Walk humbly when studying God's Word. Walk humbly when you're under trials. Walk humbly in your devotions. Walk humbly with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
and walk humbly when dealing with sinners. True humility is thinking rightly of yourself, not meanly. When you have found out what you really are, you will be humble, for you are nothing to boast of. That's one of the things we need to remember. To be humble will make you safe. To be humble will make you happy. To be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your master by and by. So says Charles Spurgeon. And so I, when I see the word humble, I remember this comic strip from about 35, 40 years ago where these two characters are walking past a church sign that says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And one character says, remind me to be more aggressive. Because he didn't want the earth. But that's not the point here. The point is being humble, and in this case, meek, because meek doesn't mean weak, even though it rhymes. Meek doesn't mean that. Meek means knowing your position before God. And that's what being humble is, knowing who we are and remembering who God is. And so that's what we are commanded to do in this passage, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, or with your God, as it says. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's edition of Power for Living. If you happen to miss any of our other programs, be sure to go to our podcast page at ChristTheKingNorthShore.podbean.com. And you can also visit our website at www.ctknorthshore.org. If this program has been a blessing, feel free to let us know. Write us at Power for Living, care of Christ the King Church, 4 Railroad Avenue, Suite 309 in Wakefield, Massachusetts, 01880. Or you can also send us an email at ChristTheKingNorthShore at gmail.com. You can be a part of this gospel ministry by becoming a patron of Power for Living. You can find out how by clicking the Become a Patron button at the top of our podcast page. That's it for this week, and until next time, remember that Jesus is your Power for Living.